You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. They're blocking out the Spirit of God. They're taking the God of the universe and cramming him into a box and say, sit there, when I want you to act, you'll act this way. What's happened? This is scary. They said that in order to get to heaven, you have to abide by these regulations. You have to abide by these traditions. You have to abide by these rites, this religious stuff. There's no way you're going to get to heaven without this stuff. Only by obeying our commands and our ideology can you be saved or can you assure a place in heaven and we're not even so sure you can get there then. God says that mercy triumphs over judgment. Pastor Dave teaches you through today's message that God has extended His grace through His Son, Jesus Christ. No believer on earth can earn or work their way toward salvation. Salvation comes through faith alone and grace alone through the finished work of Jesus. Now here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 7 as he begins his message. The temple made with hands. You are sure. I'm real excited because we're getting near to the pinnacle of this uh, defense that Stephen is making. We're in the book of Acts, and we're studying the book of Acts. We're studying chapter 7. We're studying Stephen's defense of the accusations that have been made against him by the false accusations, I might add, and uh, his now before the council. Today we're going to be in Acts 7, verses 44 through 50. So if you turn in your Bibles, Acts chapter 7, we are going to be beginning in verse 44. I'll read aloud if you would read along silently, please. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, whom found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all things? How many have ever heard the term sacred cow? Ever heard that term, sacred cow? Yeah. If you don't know what a sacred cow is, it's an idiom. It's a figurative reference to the sacred cows that some religions have. This idiom was originated in the American English, although you can find it in other languages, this sacred cow but it's based on the popular understanding of the elevation of cows in the Hindu religion. You know, they think that you can't murder a cow because it might be somebody's mother or grandmother or uncle or father or whatever because they believe in reincarnation. A literal sacred cow or a sacred bull is an actual cow or bull that has been treated with severe reverence and is used in a sacrifice. But a figurative sacred cow, the one that we're going to talk about, is something else that is considered immune from question. It is immune from criticism, especially unreasonably so. This is where we find Stephen. 
Stephen is in the midst of his defense. You know that he's speaking to the council now. He's been speaking to him for quite a while. In fact, around here, we've been talking about this uh, talk about Stephen now for almost a month or two. We've been talking about how Stephen is now defending himself against these false accusations that have been made. And he's making a point, if you will. He's talking, he's, and God is using this testimony. Remember, he is talking, and as he talks, his face is shining like that of an angel. And as the council looks at him, they can't speak. They can't even utter a word against him because they're in awe of what they see. Stephen doesn't hesitate to be a testimony for God against the nation Israel. And he's bringing the theology of Jesus Christ down hard on the pillars of Judaism. We saw where he, he brought them down on their forefathers, Abraham and Joseph. He brought it down on their leaders, Moses. And every prophet that came by, how they dis disregarded the prophet and they even killed the prophets. And their law. These are sacred cows to Judaism. These are sacred cows. And woe be it to you if you come against one of these sacred cows. Don't come against these sacred cows because after all, they are so important to Judaism. And now he's about to bring up the last sacred cow, the temple. He's ready to talk about the temple. Israel had always believed that because they had the temple, they had the presence of God. The temple exemplified the presence of God. Stephen now is going to address this false foundation that they have, this, this false sense of security that they have with the temple. And as he's done with the other sacred cows, Stephen's going to make a parallel from the temple straight to Jesus Christ. And he's going to cut them to the heart. It's the final blow that Stephen makes towards the Sanhedrin, towards this council. It's the final time Stephen has as he speaks to the council. He does not know the end result, but God knows. And God is using this witness, using this testimony to great extents. We talked about one of the council members being the Apostle Paul, or actually his name is Saul of Tarsus at this point. And he's sitting at the council, and he's listening to everything that's being said. And we know that the Holy Spirit is working in his heart. And this thing that happens to Stephen, what looks like such a bad, horrible thing, which ends up in Stephen's death, actually becomes Paul's future, becomes Paul's resurrection, so to speak, becomes Paul's anointing by the Holy Spirit, because Paul sees this. And Paul's standing there. We're ready now as he draws this parallel to Jesus Christ. So we begin in chapter 7 in verses 44 and 45, as we already read. It says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed instructed Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David. Remember, one of the things that Stephen was accused of falsely was wanting to destroy the temple. Stephen was accused of falsely wanting to destroy the temple. In fact, it's the same thing that they accused Jesus of, of wanting to destroy the temple. He said that he would destroy this temple and then restore it in three days. Remember that when they had Jesus before the Sanhedrin? Stephen is being held against that. But Stephen declares to the nation Israel, you guys are destroying your temple. You guys are the one that destroyed the temple. You guys are the one that are making a mockery of God. You guys are the one that don't understand. And he's going to make this great point. And he talks about the temple in the wilderness. You know, Moses built the temple in the wilderness according to the Lord's specification. And God's glory dwelt there. The glory of God was with Israel for a long time. It dwelt in that temple. Now, have you ever seen the parameters of the temple? The tabernacle in the wilderness, they call it? The English word tabernacle is derived from the Latin word tabernaculum. It means tent or hut. And you take the word sanctuary, which is also used as the biblical tabernacle, and this means tent of meeting. But the Hebrew phrase 
Mishkan implies to dwell or to rest or to live in. And this refers to the indwelling presence of God. And you've heard of the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of God. That's the word being used here for God's presence. It's based on the same Hebrew word, Mishkan. The Shekinah glory dwelt in this divinely ordained structure that God ordered Moses to build. You can read about the construction of the tabernacle in the wilderness in the book of Exodus, when God gave the commandments to Moses and said, build this. He says in Exodus 25, verses 8 through 9, and let me make a sanctuary that I will dwell, there's the Shekinah, among them. According to all I show you, that it is a pattern of the tabernacle, the Mishkan, and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you make it. Thus, you have the idea that God wants this structure to be built, that it might be a dwelling place, so to speak. And the presence of He, God, will dwell there and be with the children of Israel. This was God's plan. The tabernacle was constructed during the Exodus flight from Egypt. In fact, they believed that the first tabernacle was built in 1450 B.C., approximately one year after the Passover, that freed them from the bondage of Israel. The tabernacle was with the children of Israel for 40 years as they wandered through the desert. The tabernacle was with the children of Israel when they made the conquest of the land in Canaan. The presence of God never left them because it was in the tabernacle. We look at the tabernacle. It was a rectangular portable tent. That's all it was. Had a great big area around it and whole colorful curtains. But inside, there were several enclosures. The holy place and the most holy place. These two areas were separated by a curtain or a veil. When you walked into the first area, you saw three things. You saw a seven-branched olive lampstand. You saw 12 loaves of showbread. And you saw an altar of incense for incense burning. Remember our study in Matthew, those of you who have been coming on to the Wednesday studies. Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, was one of the priests that was burning incense. This is what he's talking about in that most, uh, the, the holy place. Not the holy of holies, but the holy place. He was burning incense there. So we get a picture of what's happening here. Beyond this curtain, there was this little cube-shaped inner room known as the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies, it's pretty cool because in Hebrew, it's Kodesh Hadadashim. I like that. The area in this place was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was these three things. At first, there was only two things, the two stones of the Ten Commandments, the two tablets that the Ten Commandments were written on. But as they progressed... Another thing was added, the manna that fell from heaven, the manna. They put that in, in the Ark of the Covenant. And then later on, Aaron's rod that budded by itself, they put that in the Ark of the Covenant. So those three things were in the Ark of the Covenant for a while. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was two cherubims, two beautifully cherubims with their wings. And in between the two cherubims, on the place there, it's called the mercy seat. And right there, right in that spot, dwelt God. The presence of Almighty God was right there. So the first covenant that God established with Moses, he has them build this tabernacle. And at that tabernacle, they were to offer the sacrifices. They were to worship God. And the priests were to do their priestly orders. But as long as the tabernacle was there, as long as the tabernacle was there, man could not approach God directly because there was a veil there. There was a veil to the most holy place, the holy of holies it's called. Man couldn't get in there. Very interesting. 
and very significant that when Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus was crucified on the cross, it says the veil was rent. It was torn, and it was torn from top to bottom, not from bottom to top. It was torn by God. And what this symbolizes is now we have access right into the Holy of Holies. We've been given access right into God the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what it symbolizes. You know that everything that happened in the Old Testament was a foreshadow of that which would come, a foreshadow of things that have yet to happen. And God was showing us a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. He is the veil, and the veil was torn, and we walk through that veil now, and we have access to God the Father. True access. We read in Hebrews, it says, boldly come into the throne room of grace. That's what it means. We boldly come. We walk into this place, and we're given permission to walk in this place by blood. Yeah. There has to be blood. There has to be blood to go into the very presence of God. Can't go into the presence of God without blood. That's what the priests did. In fact, the priests did their duties once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement. They did their priestly duties, and they had to sacrifice an animal for their sin. Woe be it if they went in there without having their sin taken care of. In fact, the robes of the priests used to have bells on them. And when they walked in there, they could hear the bells tinkling in the holies of holies. And if the bells stopped tinkling, they go, uh-oh, they must have done something wrong. Josephus says that they even tied a rope around one of their legs. And as they went in there, if they died, they could drag them out because nobody was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. Nobody could go in. So you couldn't go into the Holy of Holies if you were a priest without blood being shed. You're starting to see a picture here, I'm sure. In your mind, you're starting to, you're starting to see a picture. And you could only go once a year. And then after you offered a sacrifice for your sin, you offered a sacrifice for the sin of the people. And you went in. Every year they did this. But Jesus... Jesus only went into the tabernacle once. One time, blood was shed. His blood was shed one time for us. One time and one time only. And here you have the example. Here you have the model. He entered into heaven itself, not with the blood of goats, not with the blood of bulls, but by his own precious blood. He entered into the presence of God the Father. And now because of that, we have obtained eternal redemption. We've been given life everlasting because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because of the sacrifice that he made, the sacrifices that they used to cut these bulls and these goats. His blood was the perfect sacrifice, the absolute perfect sacrifice. It was done like it, and there'll never be anything like it ever again. There's only one sacrifice. There'll never be another. Jesus Christ, the righteous, died for us on that cross, giving us entrance to God the Father, giving us entering into the Holy of Holies, and God proved it when he ripped the curtain, when he ripped the veil. When he tore that thing and said, enter by the blood of the Lamb. Enter by the blood of the Lamb. Remember this covenant that God had previously given to the children of Israel. It was a covenant, and basically he says, if they will do them, they shall live. He was talking about the law. He was talking about the Ten Commandments. It was the first covenant that was given. If you obey me and all these statutes, then I will be your God, and you will be my people. This first covenant was established on man's faithfulness. Man's faithfulness to obey commands, to obey laws from God. That's what the first covenant represented. But the new covenant, the new covenant is based on God's faithfulness, not man's faithfulness. The new covenant is brought to us by none other than the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the new covenant. The old covenant failed. Why? It wasn't because it wasn't good enough. And it wasn't because it didn't declare the truth. It did. The old covenant failed because we were too weak to keep it. We, in of our own self, could not keep the old covenant. 
The new covenant is established forever. And it's not predicated on what I can do. It's predicated on what Jesus has done. It's not predicated on the laws that I keep, the rituals I do, the things I do for God. It's predicated on one thing and one thing only, Jesus Christ shed blood. That's what it's predicated on. Nothing else. It's predicated on God's faithfulness, not mine. Timothy says, God is faithful even when I'm faithless. God is always faithful. So as I stated, when the tabernacle was finally assembled, it was an earthly model of heaven. It was an earthly model of heaven. We had a, heaven, a model of heaven here. And since Moses had instructed to build it according to a pattern, we see these things in Scripture. For example, in Revelation 4, verses 1 to 6, it talks about the Ark of Covenant and how it represents the throne of God. Remember, God sat on the Ark of the Covenant. He sat between the cherubim. That's where they would meet with him. The lampstand and the laver all correspond to heavenly reality. In Revelation 8, verses 2 to 4, the altar of incense is mentioned there, and it's mentioned that it's in heaven. The altar of incense is in heaven. And who cannot understand the temple, the tabernacle, when you read Isaiah 1, or excuse me, Isaiah 6, 1 through 7? I see the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The temple is heaven. And the brazen altar was there, and the, and the laver, the pit, the altar was there. And it's described for us in Isaiah. And finally, in Hebrews 9, verses 23 to 24, it tells us that at some point in time after the cross, Jesus entered the heavenly realm. And it was represented on earth by the tabernacle. It's the same thing. Jesus entered in. And he appeared in the presence of God. And he offered atonement for us. He went into the very presence of God just like the priest. Therefore, Jesus becomes what? Our high priest. He becomes our high priest who offers the sacrifice, the one sacrifice, the only sacrifice for our sins. And he offers that. So in reality, when these high priests were making atonement back in the day, and when they were going through these things, it was almost like they were just play acting, looking forward to a much better solution, a perfect atonement, a perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ. Stephen is explaining all this to the Jews, to the Sanhedrin. He's explaining all this. In Acts 7, verses 45 and 47, it says, David, who found favor with God, and asked him to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him a house. They wanted to go from a tabernacle of meeting to a temple. They wanted to change the temple, a structure that was built in Jerusalem, and David wanted to build it. God said, no, you cannot build me a house. You can look at that in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 3, when God said to David, you shall not build the house of my name, because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. David could not build a house. David was allowed to collect all the materials for it, but he could not build it because he was a man of war. God said, no, you can't build it. And it's the same pattern. The temple is the same pattern as the, as the tabernacle in the wilderness. It's the same thing. And this becomes Solomon's crowning achievement as king. He builds this temple, the house of God. When you look at the description of Solomon's temple, it must have been quite opulent quite a palace when you look at this temple, when you look at the dimensions of it. And inside the ceiling alone was 180 feet by itself. It was 90 feet wide and 50 feet high. In fact, the highest point in the temple was 120 cubits tall, about 20 stories high. 207 feet. It's a magnificent place. And Solomon spared no money making it happen. He got the finest cedar from Lebanon. He got this. He got the choicest stones. He did everything. You can read all about that in 1 Kings, how he got all this stuff together. In fact, 
it went over budget. And Solomon had to sell some of the towns of Galilee to pay for his temple that he was building. But when the temple's completed, when the temple happens, Solomon goes in there and they make this sacrifice and he invites everyone into the temple and he prays for them. And I find it really interesting in 1 Kings 8, verses 41 through 43, Solomon's prayer here. Because what I see here, Solomon has a picture into the future. Solomon's looking into ahead. Because listen to his prayer and see if you don't get the same thing I get. Solomon says, he urges God to pay particular heed to their prayer. He says this, Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this temple, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. A beautiful prayer. Solomon's saying Jews and Gentiles alike, pray for them. God, hear their prayers. Solomon has great foresight of what's going to happen in the future. Solomon knows that one is coming who rule and reign and sit on David's throne forever. Solomon's declaring this. Pray for these people. Pray for Jews and Gentiles alike. You know what happened? When the temple was finished, God came and dwelt in the temple. God came back and dwelt in the temple. But something happened like that. Over the years, the worship at the temple degenerated into mere religious formality. And eventually, they even took and placed idols in the temple. Idols that they worshiped beside the living God. You can find that out in 2 Kings 21, not 1 to 9, and Ezekiel 8, 7 to 12. Folks, this scares me. Has this happened to our churches today? You see these beautiful buildings with all this stained glass and all these statues around it and all the religious formalities and the traditions of man and all the rules and the regulations that have come in and superseded the Word of God. Is this what's happening? It's scary. They take the Spirit of God and they go, get in this box, Spirit of God, and they put them over here. And all they do is rote prayer. You know what rote prayer is? The same prayer over and over and over and over and over again. There's no room for the Spirit. They pray the same way every single time. They do the same thing every single time. Where's the Spirit in that? They're blocking out the Spirit of God. They're taking the God of the universe and cramming Him into a box. and say, sit there, and when I want you to act, you'll act this way. What's happened? This is scary. They said that in order to get to heaven, you have to abide by these regulations. You have to abide by these traditions. You have to abide by these rites, this religious stuff. There's no way you're going to get to heaven without this stuff. Only by obeying our commands and our ideology can you be saved or can you assure a place in heaven and we're not even so sure you can get there then. What's happening? This is a frightening place. This is scary. I'm scared. I'm I'm in tears. What's going on here? You see this everywhere we go. These magnificent, opulent buildings that are empty and dead. And they think that just because they go there, God's there. They left God out. They've left God out. They're obeying their traditions. They're obeying their own regulations and rules that are man-made. God's not in that. You are Thank you for joining us here today on A Sure Hope. In this series, Pastor Dave has been teaching through the book of Acts. This book follows the journeys of many disciples, but especially of the Apostle Paul. He took several missionary trips to tell others about Jesus, and he acquired many companions along the way. Wouldn't it be interesting to be a traveling missionary? 
he met many people who readily accepted the message he was bringing. In other cities, his life was threatened and he was pushed out as people didn't want to hear about the way. But being a Christian isn't meant to just be an easy road. As Paul's life displayed, you go into it knowing that there will be obstacles that you face. Is it worth it, you might ask? Of course it is. The prize that you'll be rewarded is far more precious than the things of this world. Staying true to Jesus, who gave up everything for you, is the best way you can live your life for Him. We're so glad we got to spend time with you today. A Sure Hope is a ministry out of Calvary Chapel, Cape May, in Cape May, New Jersey. If you're in the area, we'd love to see you on Sunday mornings. Check out AsureHopeRadio.com for service times and directions. Once again, that's AsureHopeRadio.com. And don't worry if you can't make it in person. On the website, you'll notice links to our live stream via Facebook and YouTube. All of these can be accessed through AsureHopeRadio.com. Don't forget to come back next time as Pastor Dave continues to go through the book of Acts again, right here on Assure Hope.